Welcome back, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. I am your host, Cass Clark. And as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And today we have a special guest, Mary Beth McAndrews. Thank you for coming. I'm so excited to be here. Hello. And we're talking about Mary Beth's favorite, one of favorite genres. Can we say it's your favorite subgenre horror? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I think I think we can safely say this. <laughs> So uh, if you haven't guessed, it is found footage time, and we're about to delve into so much history from stories to photographs to films, and then specifically talk about the Blair Witch Project, of course, the OG, and then uh, recently, 2023's The Outwaters. So Ryan, do you want to kick us off with some history of found footage? Hey, everybody. So today we're talking about found footage, which I would argue is a a storytelling technique or a format as much as it's a a subgenre of horror. And it's really applied to many different subgenres. Um, but generally in found footage is wherein the film is shot by characters within the film's world. And I'd actually argue it's a technique that predates films, mostly as hoaxes. And there have been plenty of hoaxes that have kind of the same spirit of found footage. For example, in 1822, P.T. Barnum displayed something he found, a Fiji mermaid, which mm-hmm. is a, a baby monkey that the torso of a baby monkey and a fishtail sewed to it. And he presented it as a real proof that mermaids exist. This may not, there may have been hoaxes before this, but we're starting in 1822. And then say like 1844, Edgar Allan Poe, among many others, perpetrated hoaxes in newspapers. Um, The one in 1844 specifically is a set of newspaper articles he wrote chronicling a transatlantic hot air balloon trip across from London to New York City that never actually happened, but they printed Mm. it as fact. And so people believed this, this air balloon, hot air balloon ride actually happened. Edgar Allan Poe with a fake news in the 1800s. Wow. Uh, (laughs) I said that's fascinating. That's my uh, contribution. (laughs) Yeah. And so after the American Civil War, um, and this is kind of fucked up, William Mumler and other photographers became very popular for adding ghosts to photographs. Um, and so like you lose, say, like brother died in the Civil War, yeah. you'd get a photo taken, a spirit photographer, um, not just William Mumler, there's lots of these guys, and they would use long exposures, um, which is basically all they had, and they would add like a circular shape oh. next to your head. And they would say like, Hey, that dead brother of yours, here he is watching <gasps> over you. Is that um, why? I wonder if that's why, like, uh, later on, when we start thinking about, like, ghosts and ghosts appearing in photographs, we always think of, like, an orb. Like, there's always, like, oh, is there the spherical orb? This is where it came from. Come from. Well, partially. And oh. uh, Colin Dickey has this really great article I used to teach when I was teaching comp classes called The Broken Technology of Ghost Hunting. And <laughs> one of the ways that cameras break very frequently is by adding orbs. And so his argument in that article is most ghost hunting stuff is actually technology breaking that we credit as ghosts, but it's almost always the way technology most often breaks that we use to credit as ghosts. Um, It's a great article. Highly recommend it. Oh, Um, cool. Yeah. And so moving into literature, epistolary novels, as in novels written as letters, are huge. Um, Mary Shelley's 1818 genre-forming text, Frankenstein is one example, 
Bram Stoker's 1897 smash hit, huge horror uh, influence, Dracula, are both told in a series of diaries, letters, and other found documents, though neither book was successfully passed off as a nonfiction account. They're kind of framed that way. Mm-hmm. For a mm-hmm. book that was a successfully passed off as a nonfiction account, you got to go to 1912 for Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by James Wendell Johnson, which was originally published mm-hmm. anonymously, and many believe it to be the real story of, uh, and the, the novel is about a black man who, a light-skinned black man who becomes a white man basically by dressing as a white person and acting like a white person. And he writes this book about oh. how uh, his life is changed in that way. And so we've got other hoaxes going forward. 1934, we have the surgeon's photograph. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, that's a photograph purporting to be of the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> it's a very early found film thing. It has been proven to be a hoax, but I think people still believe it, which I always find very fascinating. There's a, another great article I used to teach when I was teaching comp about how people won't change their mind, even presented with evidence, because if you think of something as part of your identity, you can't change your mind because you'd be a different person then. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I used to, very brief anecdote, I used to work on a um, a show about Bigfoot on Animal Planet called Finding Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much evidence like was presented against it to these people on the show, they would find a reason around it. Like, oh no, that's actually, Bigfoots are actually this. And it is really interesting how people like will do anything to keep believing in stuff, even oh, if absolutely. it's like scientifically proven. Yeah. So 1938, the very famous Orson Welles stages H.G. Wells' books, War of the Worlds, as though it were a true event, Mm -hmm. and it fooled some members of the general public. Although the more I read about it, like my my middle school English teacher was like, everybody believed it. People had guns by the doors. And then like when you actually read about now, it's like, no, most people knew it was fake. It was not as successful as my middle school English teacher led me to believe. And I'm kind of salty. (laughs) in the 1960s there were these things called mondo films that were purported to be documentaries but were often faked um which would show shocking deaths Mm. uh 1961 we're not in horror yet we're getting some found footage as the technology gets more into people's hands to to film stuff so there's an experimental film by shirley clark in 1961 called the connection about heroin use it uh interestingly led to a court case in new york over the use of the word shit it was like a decency trial. Could movies use uh, the word shit this many times? Um, which Clark won, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, 1967, there was David Holtzman Diary, another experimental film by a college student where a man films his own diary. Interestingly, in 1967, the Patterson-Gimlin film, which is another thing that was claimed to be found footage, it's a video of uh, Bigfoot from a distance. Um, mm-hmm. Probably the most famous video of Bigfoot. I have to 19- ask, have you seen yeah. it, Mary Beth? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Okay. Everyone loves it's like that's like the first big evidence of like Bigfoot that was like purported around for a long time too. And we might talk about it, but Willow Creek, which is a really good found footage film, actually is like based around the location where the Patterson Gimlin oh. film was at was was filmed in real life. Yeah. Oh fantastic. Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. In 1969, we get Coming Apart, uh, Rip Torn secretly films his sexual encounters. Rip Torn's character, I should say, not Rip Torn, the, the person. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, probably se- Separate that a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 1971, Punishment Park. Some people argue is the first found footage film. 
1978, I never hear it talked about as found footage, but Faces of Death, mm-hmm. which was a series of purportedly real footage of, of deaths uh, designed to shock audiences. So I'd argue that's probably found footage, though I haven't seen it. So if you all have more info, I'd love to. It's tricky because it's like, I guess we'll get into this too, especially when you talk about the Blair Witch Project, where like, if you're using real tape of actual events, can we still classify that as found footage? Like, how far do you push that? Like, if from realism to like mock realism, because in a lot of the faces, yeah. the the murders they have are like not necessarily murders, but the deaths. Some of them are actual footage, like taken from like news clips or other things, just to show all the different ways that people can die. So, like, I don't know. I feel like that's one of those films. I think you could argue either way. Yeah, and I think it depends on how you think about found footage. Like, it doesn't have a framing device, really. It's mostly just, like, a clip show, basically. So it is interesting, like, how it depends on, again, like, how you want to define it. And if if it doesn't have a framing device and you don't really know what's real and what's not, Mm -hmm. I think that is a really interesting application of found footage label, for sure. I hadn't thought about Faces of Death as found footage. It's interesting. Yeah, I haven't either. They're remaking it, which makes me incredibly nervous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's why. really weird. I'm not quite sure about all that, but hey. We'll see what happens. It's going to be glossy uh, and sexy and deaf. <laughs> oh, I, like I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but you can't say it's real footage now, right? I feel like there's got to be some legal. Yeah, there's. I don't think you can like. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, legal consequences, 1980 had Cannibal Holocaust, Rogerio Diodata's notorious film, which pillories the Mondo films, so follows a documentary crew as they torture indigenous tribes to get good footage. The legal part, which comes in now, is that the film is most famous because Diodata was put on trial for killing one of the crews because the effects were so convincing. Um, and just like a warning to anyone thinking about watching this, they do kill for real animals throughout the course of the film. So like real animal murders are in this. Um, and if that's not your thing, this is not the movie for you. 1983 had Special Bulletin, which is a made-for-TV movie disguised as a special news mm-hmm. bulletin about terrorists bringing a nuke into Charleston, South Carolina. That's a choice. 19... Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 1985 had Guinea Pig, The Devil's Experiment. Uh, it's a Japanese found footage, kind of a snuff film. 1989 had one of the more famous, more popular ones, the McPherson tapes slash UFO abduction, which is, it was on Shutter when I watched it a couple of months ago. It's a family makes first contact during a birthday party. And this is another spot to kind of stop and say, like, we now have home video cameras. And so the mm-hmm. found footage is going from like, everything's a documentary crew or a film student to here's just some regular people with a camcorder. Something really interesting about the McPherson tapes too is that like, so Dean Alalito, who made it, he made it, it didn't really go anywhere. And it actually ended up being on, people found it and thought it was real. They didn't know Mm -hmm. it was found footage. And so they ended up like, it was on, I think like Unsolved Mysteries or one of those shows where people like showed it as like a thing that actually happened. And they're like, we caught actual footage of an alien abduction. And it was talked about like, at ufo conventions and things like that and he had to come out and be like guys this is not real like i made this movie with my friends like this is not real and people were like no you're lying but for a long time this like the mcpherson tape slash ufo abduction was like circulating in ufo communities as actual evidence of alien abduction that's That's so fascinating yeah like imagine taking something from your brain and you're like no no no, i made this up and everyone else being like no you're wrong like how (laughs) how does like 
I want to just yeah, like, it's the wall thinking wild. of it. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. If you if you have the vinegar syndrome release of it, um, they have a there's a really cool interview with him talking about like the history of the movie and how it became like this artifact that people were using to prove that aliens were real. It's really it's really, really wild. Oh man. Okay. Another one that tricked people into thinking it was real mm. was Ghost Watch, a British oh, 1992 yeah. so Halloween presentation. Also excellent. But basically it ended with them. I should not spoil the ending of the movie during a history. <laughs> uh, people were so scared during Ghost Watch, which is like, it has similar vibes to like WNUF Halloween special where mm-hmm. you're watching it because you you think it's a live broadcast around like Halloween-y times. And there's just like possibly like haunted house kind of setup is like really what it's going into. But it was so real when they uh, broadcasted it that people would call into BBC and they actually had a phone number on the screen that you could call and it would actually have a voicemail and it, it, like set up and just be like, oh, we're so busy. The lines are busy right now because like so much is going on. But it like added to that layering effect. But then someone got so scared that they actually severely hurt themselves uh, because they were Ooh. convinced that there was like a ghost in their house. So like the, d- the deeper you dig into this, I feel like it brings in a lot of questions about like moral responsibility around those kind of things. However, yeah, yeah. But I will also say that they did it. They were, there are end credits to the special. So like within context, similar to like, oh gosh, the War of the Worlds, where like there was enough like signal signaling where like you could probably figure out that it was not real. But if you tuned in like halfway through, you would have no idea. But well, yeah. they advertised it yeah. like it was real too. And all of the, all of the newscasters you see, like were the actual news, BBC newscasters, they weren't yes. actors. So people were so yeah. familiar with them that they were like, they wouldn't lie to us. So that's a really interesting way how it plays with the truth aspect. Cause like, oh yeah, these are trusted news figures in England. Like we all know who they are. They wouldn't lie to us. And they were advertising it as like this big Halloween special as like yeah. tune in to see like this real haunting. And so they like, definitely caused quite a stir and they won't play it ever again in england on on air yeah. band yeah it had so some pretty bad consequences yeah. yeah also in 1992 was man bites dog a belgian flick about a documentary crew following a serial killer and slowly uh, moving from observing to participating Ugh. i think it's also an important film mm-hmm. in that it's one of the earlier found footage films that does not pretend to be real mm. In 1995, there was a short film called Alien Autopsy, and it's a video of a supposedly real alien autopsy um, that mm-hmm. kind of just circulated outside of theaters and such. 1995 also had Forgotten Silver, wherein Peter Jackson, yes, that Peter Jackson, <laughs> fakes a documentary about a fictional filmmaker. 1998, Alien Abduction Incident in Lake County was a made-for-TV remake of the McPherson Tapes. 1998 also had The Last Broadcast, written, directed, produced by, and starring Stephen Avalos and Lance Weiler. That was a big one before The Blair Witch Project. Um, the 1999, The Blair Witch Project, which we'll talk about in depth later on, but it was a massive hit with a, a viral marketing campaign before there were such things. It led to a massive spike in found footage films. Mm-hmm. Had sequels in 2000 and 2016. The next year, 2000, had the St. Francisville experiment, wherein ghost hunters in a haunted mansion previously owned by Delphine LaLaurie, the notoriously brutal slave owner slash torturer in New Orleans. Hmm. 2001 had August Underground, where serial killers go on a road trip. It got sequels in 2003 and 2007. 2002 had The Collingwood Story, which is the first computer screen film all told on a computer screen, to my knowledge, um, which is much earlier than I imagined. Yeah. 
2003 had the great American snuff film, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Got a sequel in 2010. 2003 had the last horror film, which is a British flick about a wedding videographer. 2003 had zero day school shooters filmed lead up to their attack released four years after Columbine. 2014 had incident at Loch Ness starring Zach Penn and Warner Hesrog, the great director. Um, they collaborate on a fake documentary investigating a death in Loch Ness. 2005 had one of my favorites, um, and we mm -hmm. talked about it in our Face Reveals episode, Norai the Curse. It's a great Japanese mixed media film um, with a ton of found footage. And after that is when things really ramp up. So 2006, we have Alone With Her, told entirely through a stalker's webcam. Also had Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which is a <laughs> great found footage slasher. Takes a lot of cues from Man Bites Dog. 2006 also had The Zombie Diaries, which is a British movie made a year before Romero's Diary of the Dead, um, which was released first with a similar premise. And so this one kind of got forgotten. Um, but The Zombie Diaries did get a sequel in 2010. 2006 had State's Evidence, which follows friends in a suicide pact as they film their final days. 2007, there's a gigantic boom. So I'm going to We'll go through all the ones in 2007. After that, we're just going to be cherry picking like the ones we think are important because there's just too many to keep going. We have four pages of notes for this. <laughs> so 2007 had The Hunt, where hunters meet aliens. 2007 had Wreck, which is a masterpiece directed by John May Belligro. Um, had three sequels, an American remake, set of American remakes called Quarantine. One of the earlier supernatural film uh, found footage films to get super supernatural. 2007 also had the Poughkeepsie Tapes, which is a particularly mm. fucked up found footage serial killer movie. 2007 had Paranormal Activity, which I think was one of the movies that really shaped our current horror landscape because it was a massive hit for Blumhouse and had six sequels. But I really think that studio is built on the money they made from Paranormal mm. Activity. 2007, Brian De Palma gets in on the action with a, a movie. It's not a horror movie per se, but about uh, the, the war. Um, Diary of the Dead, another horror legend, George Romero, tries his hand at the format. 2007 also had Welcome to the Jungle, which is an homage to Cannibal Holocaust, where a documentary crew is murdered by a native tribe, which is a gross trope, but I haven't seen the movie, so I'm not going to say too much about it. 2007 had Long Pills, a documentary crew follows a serial killer. 2007 also had Exhibit A, a horrific drama about an LGBTQT teenager in England. If you want to really get fucked up, watch Exhibit A. If you want to fuck your day up, Exhibit A is a movie that will fuck your day up. Sorry, but that is one of oh. like the most harrowing found footage movies I've ever seen. Good to know. 2007 also had Death of a Ghost Hunter, which is the classic, I will pay you X dollars to stay in this haunted house for the night. 2007 also had Live with contestants playing Russian roulette on live TV, notably having Eva Mendez and Jeffrey Dean Morgan in the cast. I don't think that one was trying to trick anybody because I think Eva Mendez was pretty famous at that point. Mm. 2007 also had Look, told entirely through security cameras as two sociopaths on a collision course with the staff of a houseware store. Um, for anyone keeping track at home, that's 11 found footage films in 2007. This is where it really blows up. So we're kind of in a genre arms race now, which you can see with Diary of the Dead and the Zombie Diaries being such similar concepts released so close together. And so at this point, there's more than 10 found footage movies are getting released a year. 2008, we had Cloverfield, which again, this one's just kind of throwing out the notion that this is found footage. This is big budget, kaiju found footage. It led to one of my favorite movies of the 2010s, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Also the Cloverfield Paradox in 2018. 2008 had uh, Monster, which is a direct-to-DVD Cloverfield knockoff. 
It also had Lake Mungo, which is a great Australian found footage movie. Scared the shit out of me when I watched it. And has a really great use of uh, low quality camera phone footage and using that to show the ghosts, which I think is very effective. 2009 had The Fourth Kind, which is an alien abduction movie with some great interview interstitials, which scared the ever-loving shit out of me when it came out. 2009 had a cult, also directed by Kijo Shirashi, who directed Norai. 2009 have you had... seen a cult? Have you seen a cult? I have not. Oh, you gotta. It's so wild. It's so good. If you like Noroi, uh, yeah. you have to see it. It's wacky tobacco. <laughs> okay, yeah. 2009 also had District 9, which was Neil Blumkamp's excellent film feature debut, more sci-fi than horror. 2010 had Troll Hunter, Andre Overdahl's masterpiece, following a documentary crew of filmmakers as they research trolls. Mm-hmm. Kijo Shirashi strikes again in 2010 with Shiromi. 2010 also had The Last Exorcism, which got a sequel in 2013. 2011 had Apartment 143 Emergo, where paranormal investigators need to film everything. 2011 had Megan is Missing, which went viral a year or two ago, 10 uh, years after its release. Fuck that film. Fuck that film. Fuck uh, it. Why? Is it like I in bad taste? Co- or unfortunately, it... I have this copy of this movie. Right. <laughs> Um, I hate it, and yet I have to own everything because that's what we, us weird poor people have. But yeah, that yeah. movie fucking is. Re- I get it. No, I get it. I get it. I'm like, uh, uh, in short, I'll say that like, if you're looking for a film that just like encapsulates Stranger Danger hysteria, it does yeah. that and tries to like scare kids away from the computer. But the way it does it, the the lead up. It's very baity, and the end of it, it just feels like I accidentally turned on a snuff film, and the it's... images are burned in my brain, and I can't, I still can see it. And I'm like, God damn it, it's been three years. <laughs> Sorry, please, Mary Beth. <laughs> so, no, I'm just, it's very, it's like very evocative, and it's Definitely. very, it's very snuff film feeling, and it's very, it's a lot. It's, it's a just lot. a lot, that's all I'll say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the it made the, my co my, made my co host uh watch it for something, and he was like, "What is wrong with you?" I'm like, "I'm <laughs> sorry, you wanted to know." <laughs> yeah, it's like the filmmaker too did it in good faith to an extent, but then when you sit with the film for more than like five minutes, you're like, "Hold on." <laughs> so I don't recommend. Like what was it. the point of that? Yeah, yeah, right. Like I I I got what you're going for, but then I feel like a lot of stuff could have been cut out, and they could have kept. You know, there's a barrel scene, yeah. um, just like one part of that barrel scene ending on that note was harrowing enough that I did not need to see yeah. like inside of barrels or other parts of things. I feel like it yes. took it too far. Well, and it was interesting how it went viral. Like you said, like you noted, it went viral on TikTok yeah. last year when like younger people were discovering it and filming their reactions to watching it. And that's always so fascinating when a found footage film like gets life, like get life like this and yeah. the reactions are so fascinating and like the weird like sub communities that come out of that is just like something that I'm so fascinated with yeah I feel anyway. like again that was like one too where like depending on like which sub community and like the TikTok world like again some people were like wait is this real and then they were like oh Jesus <laughs> like huh. I, I yeah. as to all that idea of like how like people talk about like sex trafficking and whatnot as like a uh, global pandemic and to an extent it is but not in the way that we think or talk about it and to listen to people that know way more about it than me like link to uh, in the show notes you're wrong about when they really dive into it because surprise surprise the people most likely to harm you are people that you know uh, but i'm gonna stop this tirade before i just explode <laughs>
So in a completely different direction in 2011, <laughs> Apollo 18 takes found footage <laughs> into space. 2011 also had Grave Encounters, which is a paranormal investigation show that goes right and earns a sequel in 2012. 2012 had the first VHS film. Um, there have been five sequels, counting VHS 85, which is due out later this year, and a series of Snapchat shorts. Um, these films deserve a ton of praise for kind of just breaking a lot of new directors and writers into the horror industry. I think it's really cool how they do that. 2012 also had Hate Crime, found footage from James Colin Bresick. 2012 also had The End of the Watch, which was a found footage cop drama starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena. 2013 had The Den, where a graduate student gets caught up in some bad shit when she decides to film herself 24 hours a day for an experiment. I like that one a lot. 2013 had the WNUF Halloween special, um, which is an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's a great mm-hmm. take on haunted houses following Ghost Watch Footstep with a lot of fun commercials in between. 2013 had Afflicted, directed by Derek Lee and Cliff Prose. The Borderlands. It's the are... best va- vampire. Vampire found footage Afflicted is so, <laughs> so, so good. So definitely that. And The Borderlands has one of the most disturbing endings to a found footage of a film that I've ever seen. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to watch it and then curse myself. <laughs> I, I warn you. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm going to do it. <laughs> I feel like my reaction to all this should be like, I shouldn't watch Megan is Missing. I shouldn't watch The Borderlands. But hearing you guys talk about it, I'm like, I got to see it. I got to know what that's, they're talking about. That's the about. problem. You're like, wait, but it's so cool. But I'm so mad that that image is etched into my brain forever. <laughs> 2013 also had Frankenstein's Army, which is more of an action horror movie. 2013 had the aforementioned Willow's Creek, directed by Bobcat Goldwith. Um, 2013 also had The Sacrament, which is found footage from genre luminary T.I. West. 2014 had the excellent Creep, Patrick Bryce's masterpiece, which is followed up by Creep 2 in 2017. And I think I heard they're working on Creep 3, but I'm not positive about that. Yeah, there's rumors about it. Hmm. Uh, 2014 had Unfriended, which is an entire screen capture horror movie. Had a sequel in 2018, Unfriended the Dark Web. Mm -hmm. 2014 had As Above, So Below, which with friends trying to film in the catacombs below Paris and gets way more than they bargained for. It's mm. a pretty cool one. Uh, the Taking of Deborah Logan also came out that year. Very creepy possession found footage with an unforgettable final image. 2014, on the complete opposite of the spectrum, had What We Do in the Shadows, <laughs> um, the film, an amazing vampire mockumentary from Tiki Watiti and Jermaine Clement, which has an excellent spinoff TV show. 2015 had The Gallows. A lot of people hated it, but I, I liked that one. Um, it got a sequel. 2015 had The Visit, M. Night Shyamalan's found footage, Grandparents Flick which helped resurrect his career in a big way because I don't think anyone was really taking him seriously anymore at that point. Um, 2015 Hell House LLC, where a group of friends filmed their experiences. They try to turn a real haunted house into a Halloween haunted house. And that had sequels in 18 and 19. 2015 had Jerusalem, which is an Israeli found footage movie mm-hmm. about a gateway to hell. 2018 had Searching, another screen capture movie. This one starring John Cho. It's got some great twists and a sequel missing that came out in January of 2023. 2018 also had Ganesham Haunted Asylum, which our guest Sam Stone recommended for us to watch way back on our uh, Haunted Houses episode, and it was very yeah. good. That oh, one is too cool. Slow. Yeah, good. Like, <laughs> that one I love about that is like it's again a great example of real life going into art and art tackling real life because the Gonjiam uh, Asylum was a real actual place. It did get shut down, but it didn't get shut down for the reason that people think. It got su- shut down because South Korea updated its 
water uh, laws and they didn't have enough money to like update the pipes to keep the place open. And that's why it closed down. But it was like abandoned and like very decrepit. And it did actually land on CNN's list of like the top 10 most haunted places in the world, which is referenced in the film. So like they were playing Mm -hmm. with that legend and that story, which I love because you're like, no, people actually went there and did that. And then they fictionalized it and got some permission to use like the exterior shots were actually of the asylum before it got torn down. The interior was like all like um, sets that they made, but stuff like that happens. It's very cool. 2019 Seder came out, which is one of my favorite films of that year. It mixes actual footage of the director Jordan Graham's grandmother and with a fictional story. And I think it does a very good job of blurring the lines between fiction and reality. That's really cool. I love Seder because I think, well, one, Seder is just like a beautiful movie, but I also think Seder is a pretty, I mean, big is a strong word because I feel like not many people saw Seder, but it's, I think, a big, a big indicator of this shift into hybrid found footage mm-hmm. where, where these horror films aren't solely found footage, but they use aspects of it to create like a really interesting narrative. Like Landlocked does that, that came out this year. And I love like, especially I'm getting on my like high horse here, but like as technology shifts and as we're kind of like into seeing how much technology is such a part of our lives, this integration of found footage into like narrative filmmaking, like typical narrative filmmaking is so cool. And I love how Seder plays with that a lot. Yeah. 2019, we also had Death of a Vlogger, um, Scottish found footage from Graham Hughes. 2019 also had Charman, where filmmakers find themselves on the wrong side of the camera. That's kind of a found footage trope devil's doorway where vatican investigators check out a supposed doorway to hell 2020 had host rob savage's wildly popular pandemic hit friends attempt a seance over zoom and invite in more than they want 2020 had spree starring stranger things joe keery as a rideshare driver who'll do anything for superstardom 2021 had the found footage phenomenon a documentary chronicling the history of these films directed by sarah appleton and philip escott which was massively helpful coming up with this history. 2021 also had The Deep House, a French underwater haunted house flick, which we covered on our haunted house episodes, again, with our friend Sam Stone. 2022 had Night's End from Jennifer Reeder, her follow-up to her excellent Knives and Skin. 2022 had Dashcam, Rob Savage's follow-up to Host. I haven't seen this one, but it was pretty uh, divisive when it came out. Yes, it was, yeah. Yes, it was. 2022 also had Incantation, which is a great Taiwanese film that implicates the viewer of a very cool twist. I really love that. 2022 also had Deadstream, which a disgraced YouTuber spends the night in a house, in a haunted house, and Vanessa and Joseph Winner's excellent first feature. They were also in the latest VHS film. Um, the two got released on Shutter like a couple weeks apart, which is very cool. Yeah. 2022 also had, I don't know if you all watch Atlanta, but season four, episode eight had the last piece of found footage. That legit made me Google to see if it was real or not. Um, it's called The Goof by the Door. It's an excellent episode. And honestly, I showed Can it to I a friend. Can I watch it without having seen the rest of the show? Yes. Yeah, oh, okay, it's cool. unconnected. It's basically disconnected from the rest of the show, but it's so oh. weird. It's called The Goof by the Door. It's about, uh, okay. it's a documentary about a non-existent president of Disney. Um, it's fascinating. <laughs> oh. And the fact okay. they get to use like 
the number of things they use from Disney's IP was shocking. But I don't know how much they paid. I don't know if they're getting sued. But the entire time I was watching, it, I was oh, like, you know is what this though, real? Atlanta, Atlanta's on FX, and FX is yeah. part of Disney. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. So I bet, I bet they could probably use it without a problem. I do not think Disney looked very good at the Rump. end of the episode, <laughs> but, but yeah, um, I'd it. love to hear y'all's thought if you watch it. Um, and then 2023 had The Outwaters, which is going to be our second breakout film, mm-hmm. um, and thus concludes my portion of the history. Woohoo! <laughs> um, y'all, what films did I miss that you love? Um, let me think. I mean, like, you got a lot of, like, the big heavy hitters. I will say The Den was uh, uh, screen life before Unfriended. I was telling Cass about this before we started oh, recording. Yeah. Um, But the, the Den is, like, the first, like, screen life movie that, and I think it's, like, so fucking scary. I think uh, you got a lot of, like, the amazing ones. I think there's just, there's so many smaller ones that not a lot of people see because of found footage is such a good DIY kind of first film, like first time filmmaker or like cheap projects that so many people are like, oh, there's just so many, they're all terrible, but there's some really good ones if you're willing to dig like on Amazon and on Tubi and stuff. There's some really, really good ones out there, but you got some really good, you got, you got a lot of the good ones though. Yeah. I would say it's kind of on edge. I don't, I don't know if I'd necessarily call it found footage, but I think Pulse uses some elements of found footage really, really well. And it is definitely like around technology, which I think is a big component of what makes a found footage film works. Like how technology is like um, shaping the way we see the world and how the world shapes the way we see technology. I think it's like a thing that comes in found footage. And I would say the first Blackwell ghost is really good. Oh my God. Yes. The Blackwell ghosts are so good. Yeah. And then uh, the last two ones that came to mind, I think came out in the last handful of years with horror in the high desert. And I just watched literally right before we started recording the sequel. Um, I tried watching last night and I fell asleep, not because the movie was bad, but because I stayed up too late. (laughs) So I I restarted it from the beginning and watched um, horror in the high desert two. And it is, it's really good. I think what I like the most about those two films and, and also the Blackwell ghost, I think it's very suggestive and it is very tense and you keep waiting for like the jump scare to come and it, Honestly, it doesn't really come, but it puts you on edge the entire time. So I would recommend all of those. Yeah, yeah those the... are really good. And then The Bay is another one that is, is awesome. The Bay is a really good one that plays with like ecological disaster. And the and I think it's this really interesting and it's very body horror in a way that a lot of found footage isn't body horror. And I think that is one that's severely underrated for just how um, nihilistic it is because Found footage as a technique a lot of the time is so inherently nihilistic because so much of it is like, we found this, everyone is dead kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's obviously nihilistic inherently, but the Bay itself is like, it's, it's really good. It's gory and it's sad. So if you want something that's pretty intense, um, definitely the Bay. Yeah. Just about Pulse. I want to say the the scene, the scary movie that got me the worst of all time is the scene in Pulse where he's hiding, the guy's hiding behind a couch and oh, there's a ghost yes. walking towards him and you're in his point of view and you see feet 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 and then you see nothing yeah and then the yeah that jump scare that scared the piss out of me that's fantastic oh oh delicious and then the last so sorry the last one i'll say is savage land which is really different than a lot of found footage because it's told 
kind of like in a pseudo documentary style, but the found footage is actually photographs of, um, mm-hmm. and it deals a lot with like immigration because it takes place on the Texas, I think it's Texas, Mexico border. And there's like this whole town basically disappears except for one guy. And they're like, he killed everybody. And he's like, no, I didn't, but he's a Mexican immigrant. And they're like, there's a lot of really interesting politics at play. And then they develop the f- um, the film in his camera and they kind of unveil what happened in the town, what actually happened in the town via the footage, the, um, the found photos. It's haunting. So that's another really awesome one that kind of plays with the format and doesn't just use like video footage, but actually uses photographs instead. All right. Are we ready to talk about the Blair Witch Project from yes. 1999? Yes. Uh, the Blair Witch Project. So, so hard to talk about this film. There's so many good things to talk about. Uh, but <laughs> synopsis first. Uh, directed and co-written to an extent by uh, Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. Blair Witch Project follows film school student Heather Donahue, portrayed by Ray Hans, setting off to direct a documentary about the Blair Witch, which is a local legend in the woods near Burksville, Maryland, with crew members Mike, played by Michael C. Williams, and Josh, played by Joshua Leonard. Of course, legends don't like to be messed with, and their three-day shoot turns into something much more sinister. Before I go into all my lovely fun facts, I would love to know what you all felt about watching this as a rewatch uh, and if it still hits for you. Well, I showed this to my husband for the first time last night because he had somehow never seen it, which I was like, we have to correct this wrong immediately if you're <laughs> going to be married to me. And also I have a Blair Witch Project tattoo. So like you have to watch this movie. He loved it. I was so he was like, wow, I really understand why everyone is so terrified of this movie. I'm like, yeah, it's intense. And it still scares me every time I've seen this movie so many times I saw it for the first time when I was 12, which was a bad idea. Um, I have been, I never wanted to go camping ever again. Um, Cause I also live in Maryland, pretty close to Burkittsville, Maryland. Mm-hmm. So um, this like was very much, I was like, it's real. It's going to happen to me, et cetera, et cetera. But regardless, watching it again this time, I, I knew it was going to happen, but it gets me every time. This film is one of the scariest movies of all time, in my opinion. So Okay, I'm sorry, but the the Blair Witch Project has never been like the movie for me. Mm. Um, I'm so intrigued to why. I love this. Okay, I think it is a very important, historically significant film, and I, I recognize its value. I did a lot of camping growing up. I was in uh, Boy Scouts, uh. and I always felt like the thing that doesn't work for me in the movie is that she has that survival book, but they don't do any survival skills Mm. like i think if there's like one point where she like found water through like a survival trick you like drank it from a leaf or something or like they had like a plan like okay we found a body of water now we're going to follow that north to the end like that's what you do if you're lost in the woods you either just keep going north or you follow the water Mm. and they kept passing the water and so that part made it hard but on my rewatch i feel like i was I liked it more because I understood better that like the reason they weren't doing these things is because what's happening to them is magical. Yeah. And so like there was no amount of like outdoor wilderness survival training that's going to undo the witch's magic. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, I think it's a good movie, even if I don't particularly love it. And I recognize its historical significance to the horror genre. Because I do think in terms of historical significance, it was huge. I think the other reason I don't like it is because I missed all the hype. So I didn't like get caught up. Like I saw it for the first time in like 2000 and 
I don't know, 11 or 12. And so like it had been like out for like 10 years at that point. So there's no question that it was fake. And I think probably the thing that impresses me most about the movie is how is it, it tricked audiences into thinking it was real, mm-hmm. but that can't work if you see it for the first time 12 years after it came out or 20 years after however many years. I'm not good at math right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I remember the first time I saw it was honestly, probably about 11. So similar to Mary Beth, where I was at my cousin's house and they put in the VHS and just like that tactile element of it too. Like it looked like Mm -hmm. a home movie. And so when you put it in and you see like the documentary font style come up, you really kind of think this must be something real or like, this might be like a movie. Cause I know there's a movie cover. I know it's not real, but like, what if some of this footage is real? Um, and I remember, because this was back in like the dial-up internet days, which are like younger listeners would be like, what? <laughs> but this is like back in the day where you didn't have a smartphone, you couldn't really search up elements of a film. Um, but I remember logging onto the website and actually mm-hmm. looking at some of the footage and they did this really smart thing, which I just, I think uh, it goes to show you when you have a lot of money behind you marketing, like how much you can play with the boundaries like real and unreal when you're talking about your film like yes this was a film made on the like about like what was it, like two twenty thousand or so budget or something around that that figure but also had like a 25 million dollar marketing campaign <laughs> so they got to do things like make a documentary a fake documentary before the film that they got to air ahead of the film's release on sci-fi so people would be sitting there and watching what looks like a real documentary talking about oh, these actors went into the woods and they disappeared and they never came back out. And then you watch the actual Blair Witch Project and it just invites a lot of questions because um, of that setup. They notoriously didn't have Josh available for interviews. So it would feel like Josh, well, they, they got away with it for about a year. <laughs> didn't go on forever, but for like about a year. Yeah, because they, they, they definitely all hide and like not do interviews. And it like, I, and I think Heather, I didn't realize she changed her name actually because her name was oh, Heather. Yeah. Actually, Heather, I think she changed her name to Red Hands after yeah, everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but okay. like yeah. they had to pretend they were dead. They had to like disappear, mm-hmm. and so they and that. Um, I think Heather slash Ray talks about how that kind of tanked her career because like they weren't supposed to like be around, and people yeah. weren't gonna, supposed to know that they were like you know existed because they wanted to play into that marketing, the whole marketing thing of these people are, are legitimately dead. They're not. No, they <laughs> very much are not. They're not. They're not. And- they're very alive. <laughs> yeah. And I, I will quickly, before we go into like, cause I, I also want this to be like a, a Heather defender <laughs> section uh, yes. later on. Cause there's, I have a lot of strong feelings about her character and the way she's treated. Yes. But um, as far as Ray Hans goes, like what's really lovely now is after we, we eventually will get to the monologue, but um, now she's living happily as Ray Hans. She grows weed. She's a gardener and she's a Zen practitioner and writes Zen books. Like she's living sure. her best life and she deserves she, it. She like disappeared. She went off the grid. She was like, fuck she this shit. She went off like, the grid. Like actor well, scary movie. Oof. She couldn't get a job in Hollywood. But yeah, we'll, mm. we'll pause here before Misogyny we Misogyny who? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay. So delving into like how they made this film, I think is probably for me more interesting than necessarily the film itself. Cause I just think that there's some stuff that they did where like looking look on looking on it now from my perspective of like having talked to like directors and actors and and understanding how other sets have run i i don't know how i feel about a lot of the things that they did um so one of the things i did for this production to enhance the realism is i had the three actors go into spots and they would have like one or two actual plants there like people that would have lines to feed them to help them on their search to find the blair witch but they would also have like 
actual people there. Like they'd be like a Denny's. And so they would interview people that just were living in Brooksville and were just like, oh, I don't know anything about this legend. Or they would be like, oh yeah, I think I heard something about this. And they would start to kind of do what we're talking about like the with the Bigfoot phenomenon is like they would start making up these stories or use secondhand stories they heard and apply it to the Blair Witch, which added to the like using real stuff within a, like a fake format aspect of the film. Obviously, Mary Brown was not a plant because she was phenomenal. He does need to sing her praises. God bless Mary Brown. Excellent. God bless her. Yeah. I know. Her like horse. There's a hair in her hair. Her hair. Honey. It's like a honey. Oh, I love her. I just love her. Uh, but another thing they would do is they would, they had very minimal direction. A lot of the script was improvised. Uh, and the way that they kind of, did that was like the director directors and writers were like around the area of the woods but they would have these little film canisters and they would have gps trackers for the actors to find the film canisters and each canister there'd be like little initials so that what heather read or ray what ray read wouldn't be the same thing as what josh read and what josh read wouldn't be the same thing as what mike read and they would use the notes they were giving to kind of act off what they thought was happening that's where a lot of the natural conflicts come they also because naturally, just the way they were taking the script, they they originally were going to have uh, Josh and Heather's characters be like ex-lovers. But because they argued so much on set, like when they were in character, they decided that it was too annoying. And that's actually why they killed Josh off. <laughs> like it was supposed yeah. to be like, who died first, but they're just like, this is getting to be too much. So that's one day they give him a note in the film canister and it's like, hey, Josh, um, go out of your tent at night. And that was like the only direction he has. So he goes out of his tent at night and he just like lies to the characters while in character saying he has to go like pee or something and he finds the directors at the edge of the camp and they're just like hey so you're dead now <laughs> he's like what um so that's how he found out and then he got a nice meal at denny's which is good because a big part of this production was like giving them limited food and supplies in the middle of the woods so they only had bananas and power bars during their days to help them stay in character they were supposed to stay in character the whole time but they did break character sometimes when cameras are off with like the safe word taco which i think is just such a fun fact so when they wanted to give each other notes they would say taco and the other person had to say taco and then they could uh talk about whatever they wanted to outside of the realm of the story about a lot of the a lot of the like the frustration the exhaustion just like the hunger all those elements are feel so real because they were like in the middle of the rain at night every time they would try to go to sleep the directors would like have a boombox playing child's sounds and screams and like throw shit. So they were like very sleep deprived. They're very tired. They were very hungry. And I feel like that comes across so well in the film. But now that I'm older and watching it, there's kind of, in my opinion, like a method level of like cruelty to that. Cause I'm also just like, well, couldn't we have just trusted them to be actors and like given them a meal? <laughs> but I would love to hear uh, what you two feel about that. Cause I feel like in my 30s, I don't think that's necessarily a cool thing. I think that's kind of an irresponsible thing where I know when I was younger, yeah. I was like, whoa, that was so awesome. <laughs> yeah, I I definitely don't, I love this movie. I definitely do not love a lot of like the stories and how they got it. Cause I mean, yeah. like it definitely produced results, but at what cost? Because I, again, like a lot of it was pitting these men against a woman in the woods mm -hmm. alone, which is a very, you know, interesting and uh, fucked up power dynamic or messed up power dynamic here. Yeah. And like, while well, you know, there were people around to keep them safe, if anything happened, there is still this element of danger to it that it's like, why, you know, like what, wh why? And it's, and I think what is frustrating sometimes is like, 
these kinds of things do so well. And then people are like, oh, see, it gets the result. And it's like, no, no, that's not what we should be taking away from this. Like, yeah. while I love this movie, it's one of my favorites. I think it's terrifying. I think it's such an important movie. I think the way that it was done is definitely very, like, needs to be brought into question and talked about because it is not, like, you can get good found footage movies without doing that, basically. Yeah. yeah. What do you What do you feel, Ryan? I have two opinions um one very much agrees with mary beth and i want to point out that like in the history of directing you hear all these stories like albert hitchcock threw all these birds at tippy hedron mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, stanley kubrick abused shelley duvall on the set of the shining and it's almost always a male director abusing the female lead mm-hmm. and trusting the guy to just be able to act and i think like if you hire a, a performer you have to trust them to perform. Um, I think there's a lot of sexism, like Mary Beth said, and misogyny wrapped up in the way they're, they're treating these people. My other opinion is that I think it's a very different situation because I don't know what their contract said. If they told them beforehand, like, hey, we're just going to give you bananas and power bars and we're mm-hmm. going to keep you up all night. Because like, I think they can consent to be part of that process. And I don't know if they did consent. Because I feel like yeah. the issue for me would be like, did they tell them like, hey, we're going to have you in hotels at night and now you're sleeping in the woods and we're playing boom boxes all night? Yeah. So they the way they phrased it to them and so they were aware of it, they said, you'll never be in danger, but you're going to be uncomfortable, which I was like, well, they knew they knew to an extent what they signed up for. But I think there's a difference between hearing that and then being in the experience, like being in the freezing cold rain at dark like a darkness and being sleep deprived and being like, Oh, this is what it actually feels like. Is there a way to tap out? And it's like, eh, not. I mean, I think maybe there are conversations that we're not privy to that. I'm curious about what it was like, yeah. what it was like on set. Because like, I feel like there should always be a, like, should, there should be a taco for everyone at all time to be like, all right, taco, I'm going to go get a, some pancakes. And I just, I need a break, I need a break from this, but then we'll yeah. go back into this, this realm. We'll go back into the method acting, but I need to actually be a human for a second. Uh, and not be freezing cold. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. At least, at least there was that. So it's um, well, we'll never know. It we'll never know. I guess. Uh, but I think this is a great time to talk about Heather, the character, the legend, the director who goes into horror movies. Like, I'm not going to make some cheap ass like spooky Halloween like jump scare. I want real legend to be what like scares people. I want history to be scary. And I just want to show like a bunch of love for her because I think like especially in like, uh, as we're recording, like Women in Horror Month, like, love her. I wish you got to have this film shown everywhere. (laughs) I, I love her. I love her. And it's something paying attention to yesterday, because Jen Adams actually wrote a really awesome piece for Dread Central about Heather's character in this movie. And I think so often, you know, like Heather's monologue, people always make fun of that, where she's got, it's just basically like, a quarter of her face almost and you see snot coming down her nose and she's basically recording like her last words mm-hmm. and saying apologizing and it's this like hor- it's so fucking upsetting I think yeah. I think it is so upsetting I think it is such a gut punch of a of a, of a moment I think it is so emo- like emotionally genuine that the fact that it gets made fun of so much I think is very frustrating and I, I do think speaks to kind of like misogyny and especially in 1999 with the film like this that got so popular because I mean most of the film is Heather being like the bossy bitch character of like 
we have to keep going this way. We have to keep doing this, but she's the director. Like she's trying to keep everyone on track and mm-hmm. she comes off as this like bossy character. But I think I, what I do like is that they do kind of change dynamics in this movie a lot. Everyone's kind of shifting roles and we can see, okay, now you're being cruel to her. You know, we see Josh and Mike being cruel to her, but at the same time, it's like a lot of the cruelty is just, and vitriol is focused on her a lot of this movie. And like, while yeah. you can argue, well, it was she was the director, blah, blah, blah. There still feels like there's a lot of like charged gender dynamics going on here. And again, that is only like further solidified when people always talk about her character in a negative way, mm-hmm. about the actor in a negative way around this movie, where it's like, interrogate a little bit more about how you're thinking about her character and her function yeah. in this film, like why you think about her this way. Because, like, she is just trying to make a movie and she is in the woods with two men and, like, she's very confident and there is, like, there is never really any, like, threats of, like, you know, like, sexual violence at any point. But I am so glad they didn't make them ex-lovers. I feel like that would have, like, just torpedoed that into, like, such, like, kind of cliche territory in terms of, like, oh, God, you can't have a guy and a girl on the camera and they have to have some kind of, like, sexual dynamic, like... We didn't have that here, but I still think there's a lot of really weird gender stuff going on here, especially after it came out with how people were perceiving her and talking about her character. It's just like, it's icky. To put it very professionally, it's icky. I think that's like what stood out the most for in a rewatch. We're like diving into the monologue, baby. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like the thing I love about that monologue so much is the director told her like you, this is a point where your character knows without a doubt they're going to die what would you say? Ray Hans, the actor, came up with the idea for the monologue, came up with the idea of shooting the camera in that way, which I think is, for me, is such a gut punch because I think in having her face half hidden, only seeing her eyes and like having her quite literally like speak so close to the camera, it feels like she's speaking directly to you. It feels like she's bending down to whisper. It also gives us like atmosphere of like cowering and hiding because we can't see everything and so we feel that she is afraid to be fully seen by like the threat out there but also like is having that contrasted with very raw uh confessions of her like vulnerabilities and also she's voicing all the things and all the vitriol that's been like thrown at her back out so you can see that all the things that like Mike and Josh did and the way they treated her really broke her down and I think for me that is what is scarier I think than necessarily the witch it's the idea that at the end of this she had everything planned out she was the only one that could actually read the map but what we're like left with like her final image of her face is her just saying like everything was her fault it was all like because of her and that like if she hadn't done this, everyone would be safe. And it's like, no, it's like the external situations did this just like misogyny, just like the patriarchy is what destroyed you. Not the fact that you wanted to make a horror film. And that's what really, really like just hits. And it's so strange because I seeing it now, all that lands for me. But I do remember being like 12 and 13 when the scary movies started to come out and seeing the monologue, like just get so spoofed and I'm sure I I wouldn't be surprised if SNL did some shit too. And just like going on the idea of like, oh, this not stripping down her face and like it just being like how they wanted it to look as ugly as possible when like the whole yeah. point of it was like, yeah, she was looking unkempt and like disheveled because everything was falling apart. She was quite literally falling apart. And I think there's like a rawness to that that you, you don't get to see on screen in horror that isn't 
mm, exploitative. I like, I felt like that that was real and emotional and like, yeah, her snot actually made me want to cry, <laughs> you know? Like, well, and I think something that I really got on this watch even more is like just the emotional, like the intense emotions in this movie. Like a lot of what I think is so, this movie is incredibly anxiety inducing to me because again, like you're taught, like we've talked about, like the emotions feel so real with all of the actors. And I mean, like it feels regardless of what it's, if it's if it's people messing with them if it's a cosmic horror which if it's like whatever is going on like we are seeing these people break down in real time and that is harrowing to see like how quickly they're breaking down and like how and like what is being done to them and being manipulated and I think it also misses the fact that like in the middle of her monologue Heather's hearing something and she's like having a panic attack because she we are watching her because a lot of the time when they're when they are experiencing any of the weird sounds at night we are the camera is pointing out so we are trying to see what's happening we don't we just hear them this is the first time we really see their their like facial reactions to when something terrifying is happening and she is just like and this is like what the fourth fifth or sixth night that they've been terrorized and she's just having a panic attack and having a breakdown and the snot is just because she's having a natural reaction yeah and it's just I think one like one of the most upsetting moments in like horror especially from an emotional standpoint and it is really upsetting that it's so spoofed because I think that takes away from like the weight the emotional weight of it like I'm sorry that you all think that snot is funny but like there's other stuff going on in the scene that I think is so incredible and I'm so sad that you know Ray Hans was you know, Ray Hansen's like her performance is incredible. Like she should have been oh, getting right. more acting roles for like how raw she is. So yeah. I, I'm I am upset that this kind of whole thing made her almost a joke when it really wasn't a joke at all. It's very fucked. Yeah, it's so fucked because it's also just like um one thing too, which I think credit to credit to Ray because she's the one framing the shot. So she's the one. Yeah. Evoking this emotional response, thinking about how to get it on screen, and is also. I think made the choice to look behind her to just confirm that this is not in her head, that this is real, which is also a huge, huge, huge pet peeve of mine horror, especially with women characters that like, no, there is something there. Like believe her, believe that she is savvy and like quote unquote with it enough or whatever insert word here for like her ability to handle situations. But like it is, it is real. And I think that's something too, which like in some way, even though obviously um, Heather does not make it to the end of this film, big spoiler. Um, I think it in some way justifies her to be like, see, I did capture it. I wanted to get that shot and I got something. And here's yeah. literally like at one point in the film, she's like, this is all I have left. And you know what? Like, at least she got it. She got that shot um, in a very nope-like way, you know, like there's proof. And she at least has that, which I think is, is sweet that she did that for her character, which I really like, especially because I think, um, Something too that like I didn't quite catch the first time around I saw this film, but I love I love the idea that like the second Mike starts like kind of laughing and being a bit of a dick right before he reveals that he kicked the map away and fucked everyone over. I like to think at that point he's already starting to get haunted by the witch. Um, because at the end, when he's like running through the house, like I and hit it on me this time where he is literally leading Heather to her death but like almost gleefully. So um, where the first time I watched, it, I thought he was honestly searching for Josh and just being like trying to find him and just kind of being like slapdash about it and not communicating with Heather, which is even more frustrating. But on this watch, I think he, I think he led her to her do, like doom on purpose and was like possessed by the Lord, which mm. I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah. Cause this watch, I was kind of trying to kind of see if there were any indicators, like if yeah. Josh was even like with Josh too, like, was there any indicator before he disappears? Like, is there a moment 
because it feels like to me, the the Blair Witch is actually preying on the two men first, because to yeah. me, they're the weaker ones. They're the ones that have the weaker resolve because we see them breaking so quickly. And Heather is this is the stronger, is the stronger one to put it in like very basic terms here. But it's like they're the ones that are, I mean, I know that it was be like Josh was <laughs> arguing with her, et cetera. But it feels so much like the he's the one that's the most in doubt or like in denial about things happening. So of course he's the first one to go. And then Mike who is just like rocking back and forth. We see him a lot and like, he's very clearly losing it. And Heather, you know, in that maternal role, we love that, like trying to comfort and keep him kind of sane. So I, that does make sense then, I guess. I like my whole thing was, I thought he was, my thought was just like, he was, he's so desperate for answers and to get out that he doesn't think. And he mm-hmm. just like is sprinting around with no concept of anything. And he's so like kind of clouded by the idea that there's hope. Yeah. And maybe that is the possession of the Blair Witch, though. You know what I mean? Like, that yeah. could be part of it of, like, she she is making or the entity is making the sounds of Josh's cries and, like, screaming. So, you know, maybe he he is so easily influenced by that because Heather is like, no, like, stop. Leave. Like, yeah. this is not what you think it is. And especially because, you know, with the story that they hear about um, Rustin Parr, about the kid in the corner, and then the kid, the kid gets killed first, and then the kid in the corner. So obviously, there was a design there to get one of them down there first facing the wall. Mm -hmm. And it does kind of feel like, and I'm kind of coming to this conclusion, like kind of this thought now is like, the witch fucking with Heather and being like, haha, see, like in her last moments, the thing she sees is like, you're a part of the legend and you thought you could outsmart me and like could do everything. And you're actually going to be the one to like really understand what's going on until the very last moment, like in your very last moments. And like, yeah, that's both very like fucked and also very powerful in an interesting way. But like, if you want to really get into like matriarchy at all about this movie, I know there's not a lot to, cause you don't ever see the Blair Witch and like, you know, it's hard to assign a gender, like a gender to like a cosmic creepy forest entity. But there is something really interesting there about how Heather is like, how she is led down there and how she is like kind of made to see everything before and kind of have that like maybe even like just a second of clarity before her life ends. Yeah, I like is- I love that read because I love to think that like of course the denier gets easily influenced. Of course the guy who's kicking over stones in a sacred cemetery is going to get like killed, you know, and that she's the one who gets to see the witch. Like I think she gets the grand reveal that we don't get, but you know, Heather gets it. And I think it's almost I like know, yeah. like a sick promise the witch is like, "Oh yeah, I'll bring you to me. You you'll get what you want." Yeah. But you know, you might not want what you get. <laughs> um, well, so I'm glad you bring up the cemetery really quick because yeah. I was watching it with my with my husband last night, and he was like, "Do you think this would have happened if he hadn't kicked over the rocks?" Yes. And I was curious what you think, what y'all what y'all would think about that because I had never fucking thought about that. I was like, yeah. I think they were destined to have something happen, but yeah. he was like, "Well, he kicked over the rocks. Like, what if he hadn't?" And so, like, what did did you guys think about that at all? Because I had never even thought about that. Yeah. Watching. Yeah. That was, uh... One of the questions I wrote down for us to talk about, actually. Oh, cool. Um, oh, awesome. <laughs> I didn't even see that. Yeah. My opinion is that the the rocks that were kicked down were some kind of like a totem to protect the mm. woods from the Blair Witch, locking her in. And they, they freed oh, her when they kicked it down. But I don't think that's in the text. I think that's all me supplying something. Like they kicked down a pile of rocks and now I'm making gigantic leaps. I thought oh, that's interesting, though. 
Yeah, I, I like that. I like that idea of like capturing the spirit through like um like physical means. I just love that because it's like uh, it's one of my favorite things about like woodsy horror. But um, I thought it was the men who died on the coffin rock. Yes, on Coffin Rock. I thought that's where their bodies were laid to rest and the rocks were on top of their bodies. And that's why they were counting the number of rock piles. Oh. So I thought that's what, that was them. But again, if they were influenced by the Blair Witch to do that, then it could, it like your theory also works totally well. Because then if they were like released, so would be like the essence of the Blair Witch, which is wild. <laughs> yeah. But if they were keeping her in then how did they appear later around the tent and like what was putting them around the tents later when mm. they wake up and find them all around the tent so i always saw them as like her weird totems that she leaves around the woods mm. and it was almost like a booby trap in a way like oh they like they got far enough into the woods they were gonna get kicked over maybe at some point like she was tricking them and then that was kind of like almost like a tripwire you know like her yeah. own, a mm. kind of weird spooky tripwire and then she just starts fucking with them because to me this whole thing is just like her cosmic like her cosmic joke for this entity to kind of like play with her food almost yeah there's um have either of you played the Blair Witch project video game slash do you want to before i spoil a part of it i've played parts of it yeah i know how i know how it goes okay so this is like it okay because it I think based on that game, it makes me think that like like Mary Beth is right because the only way to actually win that game to not get possessed by the Blair Witch is never once a single time touch any totem, anything that the Blair Witch has left. Um, oh. And I love that idea that like they touch the totems, they they mess with the rocks, they make contact in any way. Um, and I also love the idea of like mentally making contact and physically making contact are both equally yeah. dangerous things. You know, like the more that you, Ooh, yeah, it's like the incantation effect. Like the more that you invite something into your into your brain the more you're opening a door and that like ideas are like actually dangerous it's like very haunting to me well that's like that the kind of if you've seen the empty man like tulpas you kind of the more you think about it the more it like becomes real and i i think i think there is and i cannot remember i have to do more research but i think there's footage that didn't make it into obviously this cut where they take one of the stick figures i think Mm. Yeah, I think um, so. I remember seeing it in like trailers for this. Like there's at one point there's one on their backpacks too. And so that like, and at one point Josh even says like, you took one of her things. Like it's a throwaway line. But I think even if they hadn't, I get that my my perspective, I guess, like even if they knock, knock over the rocks, like the witch kind of can play into the curiosity of everybody and under like knows like, uh, I know how your brains work and you're going to want to like, touch something do something because heather mm-hmm. is obviously obsessed with this and wants to capture it and I, maybe that's her playing with heather of like mm-hmm. tricking her into doing something for for the research for like the truth of it all so i love yeah. that yeah i love the tripwire theory my last fun question before ryan if you want to add in any is uh when they were casting for the actors for this film they asked them all the question you've been in jail for no- the last nine years we're the parole board why should we let you go Famously, Ray Hand said, you shouldn't. And that's kind of <laughs> which I love. Yeah. Uh, but what would yeah. you say if you were in that casting call and they said, uh, why should we let you out of jail? <laughs> it was the one-armed man. Menacent. <laughs> what would you say, Mary Beth? What would I say? I don't even, I would just be like, I would freeze. I'd be out the door. They'd kick me out. I'd be like, uh, I feel like I'd go on like some like saccharine discussion about how I've reformed myself and like tried <laughs> to give this like beautiful speech about everything when I really 
<laughs> I have no idea. Oh my God, I'm frozen. Yeah, I think so. It's such a good question. Um, I don't know. I think I'd probably just laugh it off and be like, yeah, see you another five years. I can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> like just admit defeat and be like, all right, bye guys. You know, you know what? Why should we let you go? I've eaten enough of this terrible food and I've like, I've done mm-hmm. enough time eating terrible food. Please just let me out. I need to taste real food again. <laughs> oh yeah. Just like the the cast of uh, the Blair Witch Project. We all deserve yes. to it's not power bar. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh... Pancakes and eggs. Pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta go to Denny's now. <laughs> it is a great test of people's improvisational skills, though. It I feel like it's a very is. good question to lead up to this. Cass, did I see in your notes they had 92 hours of footage? They edited down to this 90 minutes. But yeah, they had a 19, uh, 19 hours of footage that... Oh, 19. Yeah, yeah 19. Okay. Uh, do you have anything else to add about the Blair Witch Project? I feel like I got into so much. I see my notes. But one last thought is watch the Scooby-Doo, the Scooby-Doo Blair Witch, the Scooby-Doo project that they did on the Cartoon Network. Actually, the guy who did Too Many Cooks. um, Oh, Casper Kelly. Yeah, Casper Kelly created the Scooby-Doo project, which were these animated interstitials where they made fun of the Blair Witch project with the Scooby-Doo characters. It's all on YouTube strung together into one. So if you want to watch that, I highly recommend. It's a really good parody without being like rude. So Casper Kelly, man. Love him. Check it out. It had a $22,000 budget and made like so much fucking money. 300 million mm-hmm. um, I have from the found footage phenomenon. That was a newscaster talking about it when it came out though. Um, so it probably made much more money since then. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the ending is unforgettable and it was definitely the template for our next movie, mm-hmm. our second breakout film, The Outwaters. Uh, the Outwaters debuted uh, a month ago from when we were recording. I don't know when it released, but this is uh, February of 2023. It was released. It was written, directed, edited, produced, sound designed, and starred in by Robbie Banfitch. It's his second feature. It tells the story of four friends going out into the desert to film a music video, and it does not go well. <laughs> um, so let's start out real simple. How'd y'all like it? I love this fucking movie so much. <laughs> so I pick. I mean, so I was lucky enough, Robbie... Ben Fitch sent me this over a year ago. Like he was cold emailing people and he just said like found footage or something. And like, it was like a new found footage movie. And I got super excited because I love found footage. And I said, all right, well, why not like check it out? And it it was the most unnerving experience I've ever had. And I have been lucky enough to see it in a theater and it's even better in a theater because of the sound design. I think that this is an incredible mix of like again cosmic horror weird nonsense and it takes found it takes the end of found footage when things just go black and takes it even further he goes beyond what we know with found footage it's like what if what happens after the camera cuts in the Blair Witch Project or in like paranormal activity things like that I think that this is just like an incredible piece of found footage filmmaking and it's weird and disgusting and I love it I what about you I I know, I know. <laughs> no, I'm the contrarian. Ugh. Um, I didn't love it. Sorry, I picked two movies that like are kind of... <laughs> I'm like, here, watch these two things. Oh, no. Like, oh no, it's, <laughs> it's totally cool. I feel like also I love when that happens, when it's like like a film can be incredible, but also not totally for me, because then I have to sit with like, well, why? Like what am I looking for? And what am I holding up to this film? Um, and I think 
for me, I said this a lot last night. So I was like, oh, why don't I like, cause there's so many elements of it that I do. Like, I love the sound design. The sound design was so good. I had my headphones on, but my dog was right next to me. Yeah. So she could still hear it. It scared the shit out of her. She hid cause it was so creepy. <laughs> oh, um, Lyra. Lyra was so scared. Um, I also felt like on edge and nervous and like, like the mode before like a panic attack level of anxious, like it's just very yeah. tight. Um, I think there's really intriguing visuals. I think the spotlight cam was Oh, mwah, chef's kiss. But I think for me, cosmic horror is a really tough sell because I think the okay. one like the yeah, I think the ones I like best is like if there's gonna be an inextricable, unexplainable thing, whatever it is, I love if it's mysterious. I don't need to know enough. You can make it as vague or as or as kind of direct as possible. But I think if that's the overall thing, then I think for me, I really, really need to dig deeper into the characters. And I think specifically like the choices that those characters make in the face of this big unknown. So that's why I love the Blair Witch Project because it's mostly focused on like what people do or don't do when something is like making them afraid um, or like color out of space where it's just like, I still don't know what, what that was, but I know the bad, bad choices and like the mistrust that is like sown when something like that happens. So for me, I wanted a little bit more story in in that respect. Um, But that's not what the film set out to do. So this is why I'm like, so I know it's not for me and I deeply appreciate it, but yeah, that's, that's my, that's my only qualm with it because it is gorgeous. I will say that. Yeah. Yeah, I was a fan. I liked it. I felt very similar to it that I felt about the, the Skinamarink, which is also, I feel like these movies came at the same time. They're very good companion pieces. I think this yeah. is also a very good companion feature, Blair Witch. But I think in both yeah. films, they're like very postmodern. Hey, <laughs> I have two of those for my baby downstairs. <laughs> uh, for listeners at home, Mary Beth just held up the the toy phone from Skinamarink. Yeah. Um, is it Skinamarink or the Skinamarink? I feel like an idiot. It's Skinamarink. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, you're fine. I would say roughly five times a day, I answer that phone and <laughs> pretend I'm talking to the Skinamarink. Mostly Hell after yeah. my partner gets home from work and we're hanging out with the baby. I'm just like, hey, it's the Skinamarink. We're <laughs> going to jail. I think they're both wonderful. And yeah. I think they're both very, uh, we're missing information. Yes, on purpose. And we're getting a lot of information. We're kind of asked to deconstruct the frame of the film, this very postmodern way mm-hmm. to make up our own movie, basically, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a very cool conceit. I also see why I feel like both of them landed very well with people who watch horror movies all the time, mm-hmm. but have not landed super well with people who are like, I really liked Conjuring too, which is nothing <laughs> wrong with that. But like, this is probably not the movie for you if that's like your level, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like it's not landing super well with them. So the, the paradox with The Outwaters for me is that it's a movie that's impossible to talk about without spoiling. But also I could tell you the entire movie shot for shot and it would not be close to the experience of actually watching it. Yeah. So we're going to go into spoiler territory. And we're talking about the... Uh, I was talking a second ago about how you have to kind of interpret. What was y'all's interpretation? What was happening in that desert? So my interpretation um, of this whole thing is that they, because there's a sign when they go onto the, like the desert that's like, don't trespass. And it's like, ooh, gotcha. <laughs> I think they stumbled into a part of the desert that is a ho- the, the, the realm slash something exists there mm. that 
is not explainable. And I think that they kind of fell into it and they were seeing Robbie's perspective of it kind of tossing him around different realities and different dimensions. I kind of see it as Robbie is being like, because when you go, there's a point where you like, it changes and you just see like a white light and it's like yeah. sounds and it's all black. Not when he has like his flashlight. Yeah. But my, you know, he goes into water at one point. He sees a weird creature that's gurgling. I think that it's him being pushed and pulled out of different dimensions and realities. And he is capturing all of that on camera and it is driving him insane. And it is like the first person POV of cosmic horror of someone seeing so many unexplainable things that they are losing their mind. And we are seeing him lose his mind in real time and forget where and when he is basically. Yeah, no, I deeply agree. I think that it's, stumbling into this realm that time doesn't make sense and so in that sense like the film embraces that and it does open up a lot of questions that's kind of the fun of it and the joy of it and if you kind of embrace that I think it's a great experience um because we're seeing him really wanting to make sense to the senseless and that's kind of the heart of the film and I think that I don't know if it's an alien. I don't know if we're between dimensions, but the fact that I'll never know and he'll never know, and we won't ever know if he is still suffering uh, or is like dead is terrifying. Yeah. And I think the loud sounds are like the ripping in space time. Yeah. Oh. That's a great, that's mm-hmm. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh... And like, we only get his perspective. And I think something that you know, is always that's that's been fascinating to me in rewatching it. It's like, what are the other three going through? Because mm-hmm. I think there are times when like they run into each other again. They do. Where yeah. it's like, oh, they'll, they'll they'll intersect and then they get separated again. And like there'll be some times where you know Robbie is seeing them and not hearing anything, or they aren't hearing him. And I think that they're all just like little rag dolls in this weird cosmic thing and are just getting thrown around everywhere and are just like no one knows what's going on it's just like chaos incarnate for the last what like 45 minutes of just them getting thrown around over and over again and I think that's so terrifying like it's it's almost like each of them are experiencing their own individual hells like their own individual journeys through hell and they're just stuck and then when Robbie starts doing stuff to his body is when you can tell he's like fully just fucking lost it he's just like cool what the hell is going on my body is no longer my body kind of thing yeah and I think like that's why I'm like this is why I'm like I I really deeply respect what the film is doing and this is also why like what I want would not work with this film (laughs) because what I want is like the communication and the connection and the miscommunication but the whole point is it's like the connections can't be held together they keep getting pulled apart and no one can understand what you're going through because they're all going through different things simultaneously, which is a great metaphor for just like mental illness in general. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's like, that's that's another layer of that, you know, like you're craving for like the brothers to stay, stay together and you can't get that. You you just don't. Um, so I think like for what it set out to do, it like it hit the mark for what it was trying to do. And I think it's incredibly difficult to tell found footage in a first person POV. Um because of this reason, but I think that it it manages mm-hmm. to do that. But I'm really curious. I, I know we're not going to get to too much, but there are other companion pieces to this coming out too, right? Yeah, because oh, I'm very curious yeah. how this fits, and and maybe, maybe Mary Beth can speak more to it because uh, I only know a little bit, but I'm curious how this fits into like the like I don't know what to call it, like the fabric of the of the Outwaters universe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there is card zero, and then there is file VL six two four, um, which. I think it adds about 45 minute 45 minutes to like then total to like kind of everything. So card zero 
is foot is footage filmed before it is card zero it's stuff that robbie films before they go out to the desert mm-hmm. um and then file vl624 is a corrupted file that they find to get more info and what is interesting about those to not spoil it it definitely gives a little bit more con a little not a ton more but there's some interesting context to what is happening and maybe kind of like predestination type stuff Mm, yeah I wonder I wonder if this one of those things where for me I need to see the collective whole and then would have a different experience and feeling about it overall because I do feel like this film in general feels like it just throws you right into the middle of something uh inexplainable so yeah I'm very curious to watch the so what's the best order to watch them do you think so I think Outwaters card zero and then file VL624 Okay. Okay. Cool. That's going to be my homework. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't now? know if they're, they're not out yet. Okay. They're not out yet. They, I think, so they're playing at the Unnamed Footage Festival in San Francisco. Um, and then I think they're going to also be included on the physical release of, of the movie. Oh, okay. okay. Cool. Cool. And they'll probably go to Screenbox after they come out physically, I'm assuming. Yeah. I think there's a Screenbox plan. I think I heard about that. Okay. Sorry, Ryan. Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, Mary Beth, I loved your reading. I read it a little different, but I do think the sign is the key. I thought it was a nuclear test site. Oh, gosh. And that's why all this was happening. Um, Okay. But everything else, I agree with you, they're getting ripped between dimensions and different times. Okay. um, Which I thought was very cool. We also had that note. I mean, I think what's interesting about this film, we have all of these like Easter eggs. Like at one point, the singer Michelle says that when you crack your back, you can release drugs that you've had like however long ago. And mm-hmm. I feel like that was a hint for something maybe, or at least like a oh, piece of something. Yeah, but I found it all fascinating. Oh. And she's also wearing a dress from like the 1800s from someone who they mentioned had like also time traveled, I think. Oh, weird. Am I, I remembering I that, that right? Okay, so another question I have for y'all. When did they make the 911 call that opens the movie? And was Robbie's voice part of that? Was Robbie part of that 911 call? I don't think so. I, I think the call happens when like Robbie has run away because I think you hear, I don't actually can't tell if it's Ange or if it's Michelle, but I think it's one of them maybe calling like or trying to. And it's like they, the nine, obviously no 911 operators record that stuff ahead of time or not ahead of time. What am I saying? Like always record that. I didn't think, I think that like happens when Robbie's not around. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. What about like those snake things? What were those? <laughs> Sorry, most of my questions for this is going to be like, what did we just look at? <laughs> what did we see? Yeah. I think that's the thing about this movie. I think you just like, it's whatever you think. I think it's like, I think they're, I think that they are little like offshoots of whatever entity is with is messing with them i think it's like little i don't know if i want to say like like there's almost a feeling of like they're all part of like a hive mind in my head like there's a cosmic hive mind and these little like things are almost like little henchmen just like messing around or kind of guiding robbie to the next horror or the next thing and it's that's kind of where i was they're just weird little dudes who are part of this thing that are disgusting and creepy and are just around to kind of make you scared yeah i like that's my interpretation i like that they're just weird little dudes yeah i like uh, i I like the i love when a film has like 
visual callbacks, uh, like they're little wormy dudes. And one of the last shots we see of Robbie is his in- wormy intestines falling out of his body. And you're just yeah. like, oh, God. <laughs> um but i love that i just think that's just so just so clever and just like it makes it hit uh in a subconscious way very uncomfortably <laughs> yeah okay my last like what was that question was it robbie watching them with an axe from the distance earlier in the film remember we see a person far yeah, off i think it's robbie. That robbie i think it's robbie too i think i mean again like this is another movie that never gives you actual answers but i think yeah. it is robbie i think it is him like a verse an, an interdimensional which also is terrifying because this is just like going on yeah. i think that's what's so terrifying to me about like cosmic horror and also like anything that has to do with interdimensional slash like different timelines is just like the idea of inevitability and being stuck in the cycle and like no matter what you try to do to break out of it like you're going to get zapped into it and that like gets to me so much and I feel like this film plays with that so that's why I think it's Robbie no I totally yeah. agree um that reminds me of if you haven't seen it yet listeners please see The Endless that I will say The Endless is a cosmic oh, yeah, the Endless is excellent fucking fantastic and I'm, as I said oh, I don't know yes. what that, but that one it's so good it explores that exact concept and it's terrifying um but yeah no I think um I agree I think it is Robbie's zip zapping all over these dimensions and after he goes for that experience he has murderous feelings and that version of Robbie on the mountain is watching an earlier version of him and his friends doing stuff and I got the sense that it was just like some of the anger and rage was just the judgment of how dumb they all were to do this in the first place. And that's what gets yeah. unleashed. It's just like, I'm just going to end this. I'm going to end myself and end all of this. Um, but then it just cyclically restarts. And that's what's like scary to me. <laughs> yeah. One of the themes that came up very early on, because I think we had like 30 minutes where it was just regular life about, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talked about parental relationships a lot. Do you all feel like that was just like false flag or does it somehow apply to the 45 minutes of terror? I never thought about it before, you know, but I could see it. I think, I think so because we have a lot at the beginning of like Scott getting the necklace from their mom and kind of like, there's this tension between Robbie's relationship with their mom versus Scott's relationship with their mom. And we see him going to film with her and see her and they're just, to me, there's like, of air of guilt almost a little bit to it and especially because like we see her later like a kind of version of their house and we see her in the film later when he's going through all of that hell and we see Scott in the airplane and I think there's like maybe a, a little bit of guilt like at first and then you kind of feel like as he's going through these different whatever the fuck he's going through he's like looking back on his life and maybe like thinking about regrets he has with his family and like wishing he could say things to them or do things differently a little bit yeah. I think yeah. I I think it's a small part of the movie but I definitely think there's like some parental stuff going on in there that I think is really interesting yeah, I found it fascinating. I think it's Anne who yells like mommy as she's dying. Yeah. Or something horrible is happening to her. I don't think we yeah. ever see anybody die. Um, yeah. I think they all do die or like you all are saying, live in perpetual torment that is worse than death. Yeah. I mean, there's also the bit about her uh, still processing the grief of losing her mother, you know, like, so I do think yeah. that there are definitely some, there's, yeah, there, there's definitely some meat to that. I think I think it just, I think it just adds to the like unmoredness of the film, you know, like 
the parental relationships aren't there and also like aren't in the sturdiest conditions. So I think that it just adds that layer of like, no one will help us and we can't help ourselves and uh, no one's going to really save us. Like, it's just, it is, I think it adds to that, like um, how infantizing, I guess, cosmic horror makes you feel. Well, and it's toying with him too, I think, in showing him his mom and his brother, just like see, like you can see them, but you can't like reach out and touch them. You can't contact them. And like, there's obviously something with his mom when he has a call with her at one point where she doesn't sound like she's doing okay. And it's like, kind of maybe like, look, she's missing you. She's terrified. Where are you? And it's like kind of throwing that in his face too, in a really, like in another way to break him. And so I think that also, I think plays into it in like pray, the thing is preying on these relationships and these insecurities and these fears that lurk even subconsciously inside of everyone's brains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. I just want to note that like for me, I think the film really works because of the sound design, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. I think is excellent. I got those earrings that have all the sound design. like have there is a pair of there is um a person who makes incredible earrings and she makes a lot of found footage earrings, which is I'm obsessed with, but there are earrings that have like there's all, all the different like audio descriptions we have like gurgling oh. and monster clearing <laughs> throat. And I got the earrings with all of like the hilarious like sound the subtitles about the sounds from the movie. That's incredible. That's so cool. <laughs> because I mean, like Robbie went in and wrote all of those himself to like really get like give the experience, which I love because I do know that he spent so much time on the sound design and getting it to sound like as rich of a sound as possible. Because mm-hmm. good lord, especially the thunderclaps and like the ripping, like that is just oh, a harrowing yeah. sound. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it's impactful. It's like the one film where, like, I remember getting the screener and like talking to other people who were uh, getting the screener and just being like, "Please put your headphones on for this movie. You need to." Yeah. Like, it's one of the rare movies where, like, it still actually works phenomenally on a laptop in a way that, if you're not going to go into theater with like really good surround sound, like you're not gonna, it's not gonna play the same like on the TV. Like, I feel like you actually need headphones on for this one, and it's so good. And I think that's what I love about found footage is I think that found footage is so is such as a film that's that really is like lends itself to watching it on a small computer with your headphones on in the dark. Yeah, I feel like especially like Skinamarink, I think isn't oh. Skinamarink is not found footage. It's like analog horror, and I think there's a lot of really interesting overlaps in analog and found footage horror. But it's like yeah, see it in a theater or the, the next best, if not the best way to watch it, is by yourself alone with your headphones on on a laptop. And there's something about especially with found footage, like it feels like you're watching something forbidden. And mm-hmm. I think that is really a cool, like a cool way that found footage could kind of plays with technology and how we're able to watch things nowadays. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, found footage really lends itself to that. Yeah. Sure. 100%. Yeah. Throughout this entire call, I keep looking at the closet that's behind Ryan and my little zoom screen. I'm just like, what if, you know, Tabby popped out and actually was sentient? She, we have a haunted doll named Tabby. She's on my uh, <laughs> my couch. <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, there's something to be said about living through screens. My last question, and probably the biggest one. So the Outwaters, I feel like, use a similar, well, not only did it use a similar marketing campaign to the Blair Witch, it uh, did a lot of stuff the Blair Witch did. So uh, yeah. Robbie Banfitch plays Robbie Zagarak. Scott Schmel plays Scott Zagarak. Michelle May plays Michelle August, basically using the same names. 
as the characters, just like the Blair Witch did. And it had a, a marketing campaign on Twitter, at least, where they sent uh, missing posters out for the the main cast that got lost, which I think is is really smart um, and definitely calls back to the, the Blair Witch. Did the Outwaters trick you into thinking this was actually footage someone found? And can found footage still pull off that trick the way the Blair Witch and Cannibal Holocaust did? Mm. Uh, that's a hard one. It's funny. I do have, I have both a missing poster from Blair Witch and the missing poster I got in the Outwaters press box hanging next to each other above my desk right now. And I'm looking at them. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not a fan of these movies at all and don't like them at all. I think it's, I, it didn't. I mean, like, it doesn't, it doesn't fool me. Like found, found footage doesn't really fool me anymore and i i think what's hard now is that like we can't necessarily like expect people to believe that this stuff is real but i think what's really interesting is how there's still a dedication to that like verisimilitude and reality that is always so interesting to me about like how well they can replicate reality like i know it's a movie but like what are you doing with like your characters and your like film like filming reason to make it feel real and I just I think it's really really hard to pull off especially because we have the internet and the ability to debunk things so easily nowadays like the Blair Witch the internet was barely a thing like there was a website kind of but there wasn't really like Google and like databases to like really search through Mm -hmm. and debunk and have like TikTok detectives debunking stuff but I think what what am I trying to say? I think what these films can do really well is even though you know they're not real, you can almost find yourself falling into thinking they're real while you're watching. You can catch yourself. Yeah. Which I think is is interesting. Yeah, I think, no, it didn't. I mean, as someone who like also gets press kits and stuff and press releases like ahead of time, it didn't trick me because I knew it was coming out. So I knew it was, yeah. you know, like it kind of takes a little bit of the magic away sometimes for movies. I have a love or hate relationship with press releases for this exact reason. <laughs> um, but I, I will say that I'm trying to think of how to phrase this because the, the thing that came to mind when you asked this question is the Britney Spears is dead conspiracy theory. And like, I'll explain why. Um, uh... I think that like, yes, I think because we live in an era with so much screen and the ability to like heavily edit videos and heavily edit photos, it's almost like through the creation of more artifice we can fool ourselves into believing something completely untrue uh, because our mind wants to look for clues and patterns that aren't necessarily there. So I don't think a lot of found footage films recently have been able to necessarily do that because I think they're coming from this investigative lens. So it's like when you when you approach something that way, we're like trying to to discover something. So much hinges on the discovery, like on the reveal, on the story, like uh, that it's like it's almost like giving it its hand away kind of where I think of something like the Britney Spears is dead uh, conspiracy theory. And that one actually got into my brain. Like it got into like the wormiest part of my brain. Um, so like just to catch anyone up who isn't into weird Britney Spears conspiracy theories, bless her heart. I hope she's doing well. Um, there is this idea going around after she was freed from her conservatorship that she wasn't actually free, that she was still in her house and that she wasn't able to leave her house and that the photos we were seeing are photos on the phone from years and years ago. The videos we're seeing are old videos, just getting republished from someone else managing her social media account. And the more you start thinking of this like creation of content in that way, it, it gets, you can kind of 
find yourself falling into that trap of being like, well, theoretically it's possible to like have videos and photos, like altered timestamps and have things come out like later and later. And would you ever actually know if this individual is real or not? Like I talk to people on Twitter all the time. Every once in a while, I catch myself just being like, what if this person isn't real? What if this person is completely different? Like there's this like part of technology of like personas and uh, presentation that is actually deeply terrifying and deeply disturbing. And the weird and like scary thing about the Bernie Sears is like dead theory was that it got to the point where like people were actually seeding ideas in a way that yes, if you take them out of context, you're like, oh my God, no, that's, that's insane. But they, they would find images, right. Where uh, she would be dancing in her studio. And because of that, like she might have a camera like in front of the glass and she'd be like in the studio. But because of how like the video was filmed, it looks like Britney Spears is trapped behind a glass and that she's like possibly held captive. Oh, um, so all these little like like found footage like elements were like creeping up or they'd be like, oh, and this like and this still, you know, if you pause it at the right moment, you can see a look that looks like she's actually like. Uh, like in pain or whatnot and that she's just putting on this show because like she has to but she's not really happy like all these things that we don't know the answers to it gets it gets very dark very quickly um but i think just the suggestion of that that we won't ever actually know what's happening to someone on the other side of a screen is really scary and i think the fact that in real life it got to the point where they called the cops to britney spears's house to prove that she was like alive and she had to go out there and be like what like enough people bought into it that I do think there's there's something there that I haven't quite seen pulled off with like social media and found footage. But I I, th- I think there's something there that that could be scary. Like not like host, not like unfriended, but something in that vein that I think um, could really really get under our skin and scare us. But I think maybe it has to have it has to get to the point where it's like a bit more interactive. You know, like kind of makes us feel there's- more. Part of it. Yeah, yeah. There's some really interesting stuff on TikTok that people are doing. It's not as necessarily like that, but I've seen, I've followed a couple of really cool accounts that like accounts that are like, there's something weird happening in my house. And it's like, mm-hmm. and count, and it's, there are some where they, they don't, there are some that have been like, oh yeah, this has all been a marketing thing for a movie we're making. And there's others where it's like, no, this is really a ghost in my house. And I'm like, is this true? Is it not? And I get sucked yeah. in because I'm like, I mean, I, I, I believe in ghosts. I just will admit that. And so like, I'm very easily like swayed to be like, oh yeah, that's a ghost. Um, Just because I like believing in that stuff. But like on TikTok, when it's presented like this by people who have like Michelle123 as their username and mm-hmm. like don't have a lot of followers and are just posting like ghost footage, it's like, is this real? Is this mm-hmm. like a movie? And that I think is what's, is what is kind of shifting into the interesting found footage. And it's like, is it even found footage? Like, what is it? Because yeah. It's just that is really fascinating to me because it is presented like in the TikTok format. It'll just come up on your For You page and you go to their account and like maybe you follow, maybe you watch like the playlist of their videos, like interspersed videos of them like cooking and of their kid. And it's just really interesting about how that platform is being used to shape ideas of truth yes. in an interesting way. That to me, I think is more is more convincing than like a found footage movie proper. Like it's I think that's just because again like that's how technology is shifting and there are people who are trying to make TikTok horror movies but it's hard because if you're trying to market it as a horror movie then it immediately isn't genuine and you don't have that air of authenticity anymore so it's just it's really fascinating especially with this job I think this technique is so easily used throughout different technology formats and I think that's where you get the kind of tricking people rather than like the movies proper 
Yeah. So I think that you can get away with this stuff, but I think you have to convince people that you're not making money on it. I think one really good example, um, not a movie, but the Dear David Twitter thread from Adam, Adam Ellis mm-hmm. absolutely scared the shit out of me and definitely made me, I mean, yeah, I believe in ghosts too. I, I also question like, is this real? Is this mm-hmm. not real? I think it eventually came out that it wasn't real, but. Uh, so I guess, um, yes, I think it's, uh, I think the biggest question is like, how can we market movies secretly? <laughs> yeah, because for a movie, you have to get a return on investment. Cause that's like a, yeah. I don't know how much the budget for the Outwaters is, but I'd imagine it's uh, at least 10 times my family's annual salary. You know, it's not like you could just make a movie for, uh, I don't know, 10K. I mean, I guess you could make a movie for 10K, but yeah, you, I mean, 10K is still a tremendous amount of money. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a fascinating then, question. Then like just going really quickly, like artists yeah. like Trevor Henderson who are making found footage, just like art when they, they take yeah. photo, like, We'll take photos and manipulate them and put characters in the background that like are obviously not really there, but still playing with the idea of being able to manipulate photographs and things like that to tell a story and kind of make you second guess. Even if you know it's fake, there is a a moment quickly in your head. You're like, wait, hold on. Is that a real photo? And I think even that that quick moment of like just like trying to decipher if it's true or not is, I think, also kind of a testament to that format and what it makes your brain do you have to engage with it a little bit more thoughtfully which I love about found footage like even if you know it's fake you're still like being you're being presented things in a way that you're used to being seeing as true like a documentary or yeah photos of things and I think that just like concept of playing with truth and telling the truth and like fiction and reality and like everything I mean Josh says it in Blair Witch like it's like a filtered reality and I just think that's really fascinating what we can do with the found footage technique yeah that was a great line and a great summation of this subgenre um Cass other thoughts on the outwaters things we haven't talked about you want to talk about Oh, two just like silly ad add-ins was that I re- was a little sad that Robbie's brother was his brother and I thought at first it was going to be his boyfriend because there was tension I was like god damn it <laughs> But I mean, I guess it's it's good he didn't kill his boyfriend, so that's good. Um, and then I really love the eerie song that was in the the uh, the Outwaters that mm-hmm. she sings because I just think that um kind of kind of like what we were talking about Blair Witch. Like, is it that they literally step into a realm? Um, is it that they touch the rocks and like I don't know something seeped into them? Like whatever caused what happening, we won't know. Um, but I love the suggestion that like this like song is also kind of this like summoning tool in the film mm. uh, because it shifts after that. And I think like, I don't know. I just think it's really cool when you can make music uh, that's like contrasting something dark. Like the the song itself is like, yeah, it's a little eerie, but it's like softer. It's like more gentle and more soothing. But because of that, it like makes the tension more because you're like this is a horror movie why is this like gentle calm voice being so gentle and calm like something bad is gonna have to happen like it just the contrast there works really well so i i love that song and i just think that um it also works on its own as a gorgeous music video so good job robbie <laughs> yeah. well and that's interesting like i so i just watched close encounters of the third kind like revisited for the first time in a long time and have been thinking Great about movie. music as communication like music yeah. as communication with other beings and 
this just like struck me because you know at one point in the outwaters they're listening in and like they're hearing something strange in the rocks and there it is interesting about like is this song a piece of communication and like maybe this music is a is how is like a communication tool with the entity whether that's a good or bad thing but maybe there is something to the idea of music even if they were playing music like music being something that attracts the entity and again we'll never know but i think there is something really cool playing with the idea of music as communication and speaking to it on like another vibrational level if you want to yeah. get there like go that way or something yeah i just think that's really interesting all the vibrations cool. the vibes <laughs> the vibes it, it, they, they pass the vibe check and then yeah. that's not a good thing here you don't want to pass the vibe check in the outwater no. <laughs> well this has been a fantastic discussion uh, discussion i have so many more movies to watch now <laughs> yes, yes you do. Uh, always a good thing Yes. Mary Beth, do you have anything you'd like to plug on your end? You're doing so many cool things. Plug away. Take the stage. It's a book called Filtered Reality from House of Fleas Publishing that is all about found footage. And I have a chapter in it about the Gypsy Takes and Lake Mungo and pseudo documentary and actually the construction of truth with layers of media. So keep an eye out for when that comes out, hopefully later this year. You can find me on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. Um, I also am editor-in-chief at Dread Central. So follow at Dread Central because we're cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I also am a co-host of the Scarred for Life podcast. You can follow the podcast at Scarred Podcast. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This was creepy as fuck, uh, but delightful too. (laughs) Which is our our life quote.